The year is 1967, and they call him Mr. Tibbs. But if you know him, you could totally call him Virgil or VT or even Verge. He's totally cool. The movie, In the Heat of the Night. Welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is the podcast where we watch one film from the AFI's top 100 greatest films of all time, the 2007 edition, to see if they are really as good as people say. Do they hold up? And how have they influenced the films that we watch now? Amy. Yes. In the heat of the night, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Yeah, this was a movie neither of us had seen before. What did you think this movie was about? I really had no idea. Like, I pictured really? heat, and I pictured okay. night. I was very literal about okay. it in my brain. I, I, I pictured people skulking around in the darkness, and other than that, I had no idea. Okay, well, I had seen the VHS, or I guess the DVD cover of this, plenty of times. I worked at a Blockbuster. No big you deal. Did? Oh, yeah. I mean, that was like the dream of dreams, to work at a Blockbuster video. Be surrounded by all those movies, none of which I clearly watched. I mean, I watched all the trash films. <laughs> Can't hardly wait. Yeah, got it. Saw it. Um, but I thought it was like a school teacher film. I think I got this confused with like Blackboard Jungle in a way. Like I just thought this is about an inner city school. Because I saw him with like a – my imagining of it was a bat. He's got this bat and he's like, listen up, kids. And when, you know, when, when he says like, they call me Mr. Tibbs, I thought that was like a kid going like – you know, like he's like saying, I'm, a, I'm your teacher. You call me Mr. Tibbs. I didn't understand anything. I thought the same thing about the Mr. Tibbs line. I always had in the back of my head. I did not know where that came from, but I thought it was Sidney Poitier as a teacher. And he comes in and he gets a classroom together. Like very much like lean on me, like Morgan Freeman on lean on me. I, I'm, I'm down for that movie. Let's see what you all thought this movie was about. Uh, you called us on the unspooled voicemail line. And uh, let's take a listen. My best guess for what In the Heat of the Night could be about is that it is a queer medieval action love story, Brokeback Mountain meets Braveheart. Uh, In the Heat of the Night is about a guy named Mr. Tibbs, and everybody mispronounces his name, Mr. Tides. And over time, he begins to get very upset by this. In the Heat of the Night, I know has Sidney Poitier in it, and I think he's a cop, so I'm going to guess that he is the cop who cannot be stopped. And he is going to get to the bottom of why it's so damn hot tonight. Uh, has to be a real sweaty Philip Marlowe detective in a sauna kind of atmosphere. I am going to guess that In the Heat of the Night is a racially motivated sort of uh, tension in the South with uh, murder of some sort, and I bet there's, like, some crime-solving involved. That's, that's my best guess. It's a, it's a shot in the dark. <laughs> All right, so those are pretty good guesses. I, I feel like it is a classic film, but, you know, like we said, we knew that line, but we didn't know what it even referenced. And the movie is a lot more than uh, a schoolyard film. <laughs> um, but before we get into that, Amy, do you want to talk about last week's episode, It's a Wonderful Life? 
Uh, yeah. There was a lot of talk online about this movie. There was. You know, speaking of schools, I was very heartened that a lot of people were also very upset that the movie implies that Mary becoming a librarian is the lowest future for her. How <laughs> terrible that she has to spend her whole life surrounded by books and people who like books and talking about books and, you know, <laughs> being a book lady. And so I, I was I was heartened for all the uh, librarians out there. I feel you. I hear you. My grandma was a librarian here in L.A. Oh. All right. Well, there's a lot of other talk online, too, namely um, this point, which I thought was really good. And I think maybe something we might have missed. Um, the, we talked about the owner of the bar, uh, the owner of Martinis and, and Nick. Right. And so uh, CB in D.C. writes, you missed the whole Martini slash Nick dynamic. Martini was the very stereotype of the Italian immigrant and was considered benign. Nick takes over in Potter World. Nick is the Italian-American who in 1946 would be mobbed up and the dangerous type. I mean, that that explains something that was sort of a problem in my head without me really being able to articulate it. Yeah. Like, why does Nick get to have a bar in the bad world but not get to have a bar in the good world? Like, <laughs> isn't Pottersville a better life for Nick yeah. than, than Bedford Falls is? Like, why is the movie so mean to Nick? <laughs> it never occurred to me to think of it, to divide it up into in two different yeah. Stereotypes like that that the film is trying to kind of wrestle with and say, I we love talked that. about like Catherine yeah. and Italian culture and representing Martini, but it mobbed up stuff didn't even occur to me. It didn't even cross my mind, but it makes sense when said. So thank you, CB and DC. Um, people I still all, feel bad for Nick, though. Is that okay? Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean me too. Yeah. yeah. You have to. <laughs> um, we also talked about um, Clarence's age. We said we didn't know how old he was. It was told to us that it's in the film. We just missed it. It was He's 293 years old. Um, and someone brought to our attention that we both thought that he was talking about, like, a new Mark Twain book, like, as if he died and Mark Twain was working on a new novel. But people kind of pointed us in the direction that Mark Twain is still writing in heaven. So in heaven, there is, like, new Mark Twain books. So I guess it would be, like, new Da Vinci paintings. I don't necessarily buy that. No, this sounds like fan fiction to me. <laughs> I thought he was waiting for the next – I thought he was waiting for a Huckleberry Finn. I I'm I'm still going on that assumption. I don't buy that Mark Twain is writing new novels in heaven. Because, by the way, imagine how packed that heaven bookstore would be. I mean, all the great authors still cranking out stuff. Yeah, and, like, honestly, heaven doesn't seem to be a place with a lot of conflicts. Where would you get new material? Where would you get new ideas? You're just – all your stuff is like, clouds are great today. <laughs> Guy goes out of his cloud house. Clouds are beautiful. I mean, come on. What well, are maybe you, you, get, about? you get to watch a lot of people strife. It's I kind of view it like that scene in um, Clash of the Titans where they're looking down on the world and kind of moving around figures. That's how heaven works, right? Yeah, I think so. And a thank you to our friends at Thrillist um, for saying that we're one of the best podcasts of 2018. So we we thank you for that mention. That was really, uh, really nice to get. Yeah, that was their writer, Lindsay Romaine, who said so. So thank you, Lindsay. That's very, very sweet. I appreciate that. That was amazing. And now, Amy, are you ready to get into it? Are you ready to break down In the Heat of the Night? In the heat of the night. Seems like a cold sweat creeping across my brow. That is Ray Charles, and that is an intro song, if I have ever heard one. Oh, my goodness. That, the music in this is great. It's, um, the music was kind of put together by Quincy Jones in this movie, and uh, it's got a great sound. This movie's got a great look. It's, I didn't know what to expect. We both didn't see it. And, and it's a very patient movie, but... I just love the cinematography in this movie, too. It really just pulls you in the way that the colors are popping and you feel 
the heat you feel that southern town in such a clean clear way right from the very beginning when they're in that in that diner and it just it is a really good representation of a southern town at this time in the United States and it has that feeling of you know I did my time in Norman Oklahoma mm-hmm and the scariest thing to me in Norman, Oklahoma was, you know, if I got out of work, I worked at, I worked at the library. Oh, my oh, God. Okay I worked at the library. You're a real Mary. And if I got off of work at 2 o'clock when the library closed, you'd walk home and the streets would look like this. They'd be- Wait, t- it closed at 2 in the morning, the yeah, library? our library closed at 2 in the morning. What? I know. <laughs> but you get off at 2 in the morning and the streets are absolutely empty in the same way this movie is. And to me, that's always been scarier than the city. You know, when I moved yeah. from Oklahoma, from, when I moved from the south to a city- Everybody was like, aren't you terrified? And I'm like, there are people on the streets at night. I find that comforting. I find yeah. empty streets really scary. That opening remind me very much of the beginning of Beverly Hills Cop, the first one, um, which is The Heat Is On. Um, and it's a Glenn Fry song. And and it's all these shots of Detroit. I don't know. There was something, and there's actually a lot of similarities between this movie and Beverly Hills Cop. Uh, but get into that later. Let's talk about this movie. The year is 1967, and Amy... I didn't even know how to put together the research for this year because so many things happen. You have Thurgood Marshall becomes the first black justice on the Supreme Court. Uh, Rolling Stone magazine is released for the first time. Interracial marriage is declared constitutional by the Supreme Court. Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight title for refusing induction into the U.S. Army. Um Evil Knievel jumps his motorcycle over 16 cars. The Monterey International Pop Music Festival happens here in California, where Jimi Hendrix, The Who, Janis Joplin, and Steve Miller Band all performed. Uh, We had our first heart transplant, the first ATM, and Apollo 1 was destroyed in a fire on the launch pad. It is also the year where over 100 race riots are breaking out across the country. You know, we're at the, the height of the civil rights movement here. And In the Heat of the Night comes out. Can you tell us who's in In the Heat of the Night? Yeah, it stars Sidney Poitier as Virgil Tibbs, um, a police officer who specializes in murder cases from Philadelphia, who's in the South. You know, This being like the biggest year of Sidney Poitier's career. He's like the hugest box office draw. He's everywhere. He's in To Sir With Love. He's in Guest Who's Coming to Dinner. He does not get nominated for the Oscar, though, because... The guy next to him does, Rod Steiger, who's playing Chief Gillespie. Uh, You've also got Warren Oates as Sam Wood. You've got Lee Grant as Miss Colbert, the widow who we're going to be talking to later in the show. Um, You've got a murderer's row of people in here. You've got Harry Dean Stanton making one of his tiny, tiny uh, first debuts. Uh, And you've got a guy named Anthony James playing Ralph, a man who works at a diner who's going to come up again. I'm so excited to talk about this movie. It's a very simple movie, ultimately. Like, How would you describe the plot? Yeah, so what happens is this movie picks up with a murder just a few minutes into it. Um, the officer, Sam, is told by his boss, Chief Gillespie, go check all the bus stations. He uh, Go check everywhere. This had to be somebody from out of town. Stuff like this does not happen here in Sparta, Mississippi. So he finds Virgil Tibbs at the train station. Virgil Tibbs has a lot of money in his pocket. Virgil Tibbs is also black. So he pulls out the gun and arrests him right then and there. It takes him to the station. Without even questioning him. Without even questioning him. Without even telling him what is happening. Virgil's innocent and through different forms of pressure agrees that he will stay a couple days and help them find the real killer. And, you know, this is like a, a pretty basic premise for a film. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, two mismatched cops having to solve a murder together. And I think what they do so wonderfully in this movie is they put these undertones throughout. You know, obviously it's 
it's a condemnation of racism, but it's also uplifting, you know, uh, a character that you wouldn't often see in American film at this point. I mean, Sidney Poitier is one of the only leading black actors in Hollywood. The only way they got this movie financed was if they could prove they could make a profit not in the southern states because they didn't know how it would play to have like a lead black actor showing up the system of the south, you know, at this point. And Yeah, because the plotting of the film is that at every turn Virgil Tibbs is correct and the other officers are wrong. Yeah. And that Virgil Tibbs knows better and they don't know anything. And that Virgil Tibbs believes in injustice and they believe in just getting anybody arrested who can take the fall as long as they're not rich or powerful. Yeah. And that Virgil Tibbs makes a lot more money than they do, too. You know, every step of the way they are irritated by the film's clear awareness that he's just better at everything than they are. And it's a really subversive film because I think it's a movie that you can watch on two levels. You can watch it and just enjoy it as this murder mystery cop movie. But then what they're able to do with kind of baking in these ideas about racism, it's it's very subtle. It's, it's through looks and glares. It's not about – there's no big monologues about racism. And, you know, even at the end of the film, spoiler alert, Gillespie doesn't do anything like, you know, there's not there's not a dramatic moment. It's it's very subtle. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that dimension to it is what makes it still work as well as it does. Because can we be real about something? Like yeah. as a as a procedural, it's not that good. No, it's, as a murder procedural, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, a lot of this is like that we have different ways of doing murder things. Right. So I'm trying to like I'm trying to let go of my horror every time Virgil Tibbs is like. Oh, let me touch everything and put my fingerprints right. as well on corpses and bloodstains. Uh, I was like, what are you doing, Mr. Tibbs? Well, but, you know, there's something interesting about it because I felt like there's no way that you as the audience could figure it out. There aren't like enough clues um, that are laid out. So it's not that kind of mystery. And you have to kind of you just have to trust that Tibbs is telling you what you need to know when you need to know, because he has a lot of information that we're not privy to that he kind of doles out at certain moments. Like, oh, well, and he takes a lot of guesses that you're like, really? How did you know that? Like when he's <laughs> like, I bet he had money for an abortion and I bet she's going to get it tonight. You're like, really? It's been a big dramatic day. I don't know. I don't know if it, all of this would happen tonight, but I was almost wondering if from the very beginning of the film, we kind of got that tell because you know, is it, can we talk about who the killer is? Yeah, of course we have to. All right, let's talk about who the killer is. The killer is pretty much one of the first characters we meet in the movie. Yeah. He's a guy who works at the diner who we're sort of elbowed to like, right. you know, yeah. he has this Norman Batesian vibe, which I think establishes yeah. him as kind of creepy and goofy. And he's doing things like killing flies with rubber bands. So you're like, ooh, the local diner here, A, it's open really late, which is surprising for small town America. Kind of like, like they're your, your library. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. But usually like diners close at like seven in the South, I feel like. But he's doing like tricks on the local cop, on Sam. He's always hiding pie so Sam can yeah. never have any pie. And because Sam is such an idiot who like arrests Virgil Tibbs, you want to keep giving high fives to the diner guy? Like, right. yeah, way to go hiding the pie. But then he turns out to be much worse than everybody else. Yeah, he's a real shady, uh, real shady character. And again, you can't draw the line that he is the killer until you have all the information at the end. Wait, can I tell you one random fun fact, though, about yeah. Anthony James, who plays Ralph, the, yeah. the diner guy? He is in a poison music video for a song I really love. Uh, really? Maybe, maybe I'm speaking only to like one other person out there who knows what I'm talking about. He's in the video for Poison Fallen Angel, where the girl goes to L.A. and she meets like a horrible shady producer. He's the shady producer. Oh, wow. I know. Deep cut for all of my hair metal people. 
The director of this film, Norman Jewison, is really doing something interesting here because he is a guy that has made a bunch of really interesting films that are very different and and all, you know, from Fiddler on the Roof to Moonstruck. You know, he also made The Thomas Crown Affair, the original, Jesus Christ Superstar, The Hurricane. You know, he has this Rollerball, one of the classics, uh, but all over the place as far as a director. It's not like he has one lane. You yeah, know? you wouldn't really call him an auteur the way we want to think of auteurs, but yeah. there's a curiosity that I think drives his films. It's I, almost like he's daring himself. Can I really do the South and can I really do Fiddler on the Roof? Yeah, and I feel like it's almost like what is he passionate about? And I think there is an element to this film that feels like I want to talk about racism. This is something that's going on in our culture. You know, this movie comes out two years after uh, Selma and, you know, he wants to explore it in a way. And he makes this movie. This is a very disruptive movie at the time. I think when we watch it now, we're we're more prone to seeing films like this. But to put in a scene where, you know, Sidney Poitier smacks a white man across the face, that had never been seen before. I mean, he's really pushing the envelope here in a really aggressive way. And people said, you know, when, when that scene happened, you know, in the North, it was just cheers, you know, like that you would see something so, you know, kind of revolutionary. And it's, and I think his career really doesn't necessarily speak to that. What he does really well is make entertaining movies. And maybe that's why this movie works because it does work as a film, but then it has this great undertone to it. Yeah. I mean, I think Jesus Christ Superstar is really, really brilliant. Yeah. But I mean, let's talk about that scene, you know, because I think that is one of the most famous scenes in here. There's like two big moments in this movie, right? right? There's Mr. Tibbs. Yeah. And then there's the slapping scene. And what happens is Virgil Tibbs, he suspects that the wealthy kind of racist guy, or we can just flat out say racist man yeah. who owns like a cotton farm, who has what the first thing we see of his house is that he has a racist statue in the front yeah. yard. Mr. Endicott. Mr. Endicott. Um, he elbows Mr. Endicott to about a murder trial and basically says, I'm suspecting you. And Mr. Endicott slaps him. And then he immediately slaps him back. Not a pause. Not a pause. And there has been some debate about this, you know, because Sidney Poitier would say in interviews, I made that happen in the script. Oh, I was like that. He read the script and he just got slapped and took it that he did the quote unquote, like perfect Martin Luther King esque passive response. Oh, wow. Where it would establish him as just this noble, man who was never going to stoop to anybody else's level. Okay. And he was like, no, I would slap him back. And we need to, ha- we need to have him get slapped back. And then other people have said like, whoa, in the original script, he still slaps him. And like I said, Sidney Poitier didn't come up with it, but that's, there's, it's very debatable. Well, I know that even Norman Jewison said that, you know, he like let Sidney Poitier like practice on him because he wanted him to feel natural and, 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 you know, to, cause he was playing with power dynamics. I, I think to me, the more interesting thing in that scene, it's the moment that you get after he leaves, you feel the weight of that moment. It's a slap. It's a slap. And uh, Mr. Tibbs leaves and we stay on Endicott and we see that, you know, Endicott's uh, butler, you know, it kind of just shakes his head at him and you start to see Endicott crumble. Like, what did he just do? You know, it's it it it, it shows in many ways without underlining it too much. Like, oh, the, the time of this guy is coming to a close. And I think he realizes it like. No, no, no. There are consequences for my actions, too. Yeah, that's what I think is so interesting about the slap is it's not just good as a rousing moment. It's good as like a complicating dramatic moment. Yeah. Because 
if he just took the slap, yes, he would be more of like our type of hero that right. we keep wanting to say, you know, because what we're talking about so much in this movie is heroism. Like, like that we have Virgil Tibbs as the hero of this film. He was a hero presented without really many flaws. Yeah. You know, and- he is, you could argue flawless, flawlessly dressed. Like he only at one point in the film looks rumpled. And it, and it was, it's really, it's clearly a conscious choice. I mean, he carries himself in a way that it commands respect. It's a very powerful performance. Exactly. So I can imagine like them doing the film and getting the note. Oh, he shouldn't slap him back. That would take away from mm-hmm. his perfection. But when he slaps him back, then the scene spins out into what is Gillespie going to do about it? Right. Like, how is everybody going to react to this? Like you were talking about with the butler. And when the butler sees the moment and shakes his head, I wasn't really sure if the butler was mad at Virgil for breaking the code that he follows. Do you know what I mean? Or if he was like happy I think about he, it, it seemed it was such I couldn't figure out what that. I think he's. I think he's disappointed in him. I think that that is. It was a very aggressive move. He slapped a police officer. He knew he was a police officer, and I, I think a lot of this movie stems from the fact that people don't know he's a police officer, so they treat him in a very aggressively racist way. I mean, look, and sometimes when they find out that he's a police officer, they continue to treat him that way. But I think what Sidney Poitier's character does in this film is he never lets himself be disrespected. Yes, he'll go to jail. He will sit there. He will be polite, but he will get his man. And that's the whole idea. Like, he will get his man at the end of this. Yeah, I mean, because the cops in this film are bumbling yeah. morons for the most part. Yeah. But the smartest thing that Chief Gillespie does, we were talking about it, is like they solve a murder. Yeah. Chief Gillespie really doesn't do anything. Chief Gillespie, Chief Gillespie just, just sort of there. lets him stay. I mean, yeah. that's basically like, if you were to chart his growth, it's just like, I didn't send him back 24 hours before yeah. this. The smartest thing that Chief Gillespie does is he knows that if he plays on Virgil Tibbs's ego, that that is what will make him stay. Yeah. That's the, that's the only thing he does that really shows any insight as a police officer. You know what I think makes this movie even more interesting is that they show a little bit of the preconceived notions that Tibbs has, too. We are obviously seeing the racist attitudes of this small town in the South. But we also see some of the racist attitudes that Tibbs has, like when he wants to pin it on Endicott. Like he's like, I I was so focused on him that I wasn't actually looking at the facts I don't know if you have to make it like tit for tat. I don't think you I don't think you should say, nor do I think he is as racist as everyone else around him. But it does just show that everyone holds stereotypes. That's actually true. And I want to talk about also kind of related to that where he's from, because I find it a little confusing in the mm-hmm. film. Like he's from Philly. He right. lives in Philly. He's heading back to Philly. Do you know where he was from in the book, by the way? He's from Pasadena. Yeah, I know. It's such a funny, weird, <laughs> a Pasadena cop going to a small town in the wow. South. Rough town, Pasadena, <laughs> doing the thing. Um, but like he says he's there at one point to visit his mom. And if yes. his mom is down there, that makes me think he grew up down there. Yeah. If he was from that town, it would be even more interesting to me. Like when we see the mechanic, the wife and his kid, you know, it would be interesting if like Tibbs was the guy who got out of this town and now has made himself... Uh, as this, you know, hot shot in another place and has to come back. I mean, that's kind of more of the traditional Hollywood story. And in many respects, 
uh, the way that the TV show that followed this movie came back, it's not a reboot. It's a sequel. He comes back to this town for a funeral. And, you know, uh, and so and then he gets ingratiated with the cops. Yeah, again. I mean, this whole thing gets a little bit like adaptation-y because they kept writing books after this movie became oh, yeah. a big hit and after they started to make sequels of the movies. And apparently they started to write the movies into the books where oh, the books boy. were like, oh, yeah, they make these movies about me. Sidney Poitier, he's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. I didn't realize that he... <laughs> Um, but I mean, these sequels to Tibbs sound terrible. The first one is called They Call Me Mr. Tibbs. And the second one's called The Organization. Uh, Gillespie doesn't appear in either one of the sequels. And they eliminate the thing that elevates this movie from just a procedural, which is the underlying racism of this town. It just becomes like Mr. Tibbs is this cop. And then we're just watching him, you know, in the third film, take down a drug trafficking, uh, you know, group. I don't quite understand like how they missed what was so engaging about this character and, and this world, you know? Yeah. And I think it's interesting that Sidney Poitier came back for both of those. Yeah. You know, because they they don't seem to have done anything for his career. Nobody ever talks about them. And I view him as making choices that are very smart and cautious. And whenever you hear him speak, he seems like he really understands, like, what's important and what the roles he wants to do. And maybe maybe the idea of just having this character that could have sequels was important to him. Let's actually take a, a second to talk about how he speaks in this film, because mm-hmm. I found it really interesting listening to it as a girl, mm-hmm. I guess. Because here, let's listen to him when he's in the scene. Um, there's the dead body on the table. He's talking to the cop. He's talking to the coroner. And in the way that Tibbs phrases what he knows about this corpse to the people, I see in him, in him that kind of way you learn to speak where you're like, oh, this is your idea. You would have thought this. Yeah. That kind of comforting them while getting his point across way. Yeah. It's a very clever way of speaking. Am I mistaken or has rigor begun? Yeah. You'll notice, too, that post-mortem lividity is present here in the lower portion, so the time of death really has to be earlier, wouldn't you say? Oh. Well, we'll be able to pinpoint that as soon as I get up thermometer. As you know, the loss of heat from the brain is the most reliable way of determining time of death. Right, Chief? Oh, yeah. I love that because it's all, as you know, right, Chief? Yes. Like talking them into what he needs them to agree with. I love that scene. And I want to talk about the visual thing that's going on while we're hearing that, which is we're on a close-up of his hands. And you're seeing, you know, a black man's hands on a white man's body. And I know that while uh, forensically that is – a mess, you know, because he should be wearing gloves, et cetera, et cetera. There's so much going on in that scene. And I thought that that choice was really, again, saying so much without someone going, hey, don't you touch him. You don't, you know, it's like it. it's all there in the looks and the asides. It makes you feel tense because he's not manhandling. He's treating the body with the respect of a forensic investigator, but you feel like, What's going to happen here? Well, yeah. And there's even that line he says in there when he begins to touch the body. Where can I wash my hands? Which is a loaded question, I think, in a way. You know, like, are you going to let me use the same sink? Because you aren't always allowed to. So, Amy, I alluded to this a little bit earlier in the show. That I see a very big similarity in The Heat of the Night and Beverly Hills Cop. Now, hear me out, okay? 
I know that you're thinking, like, that's just an Eddie Murphy cop movie, but it does a lot of the things the same way. It deals with racism. It's a different thing. It's a Detroit cop coming to Beverly Hills. They look down on him. They stereotype him. As a matter of fact, think of it like this. It's a black cop coming to a foreign town who's falsely arrested, doesn't reveal himself to be a police officer until after he's arrested. He's there to solve a murder, and he's investigating one of the biggest people in Beverly Hills at the request of a white woman. You know, the only real difference is there's a giant gunfight at the end. Well, actually, there's not a difference. There's a gunfight at the end of this, too. People get shot. I just think when you look at it, there are some real similarities. I think one of the cool things about Beverly Hills Cop, and I've, I've talked about this on other podcasts, is that it does deal with racism because Eddie Murphy's in it. I think if Beverly Hills Cop was not with Eddie Murphy, it wouldn't have been that way. And actually, the movie wasn't built for him. They kind of just slotted him in, and it and it kind of formed around him. But some of the classic scenes about not being a lad at the Beverly Hills Hotel, you know, his kind of working with uh, the different white cops and the fact that he knows how to do it. They don't know how to do it. They do it by the rules. He has a better way of doing it that actually gets results. I don't know. All I'm saying is uh, you're laughing at me, but do you what 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 do you think? <laughs> well, the movie I was thinking about watching this was is Green Book. OK, I feel like Green Book to, has, you know, borrowed a lot of elements from this movie because Green Book takes place about the same time, two years, three years before. Yeah. And it's a lot of big, dumb white guy in a car being big and dumb and rude and crass, right. you know, and his much more intelligent, educated black passenger who is more in charge of what is happening, knows what's going on and is yet looked at by everybody as a nobody. Right. You know, in that dynamic of both of them, uh, like exploring the South together kind of as a road picture. But there's there's little stretches of this as they like drive around. Yeah. Where it felt very similar, like two people clashing. But also, you know, there's there's kind of scenes that even seem a lot like each other. Like in Green Book, um, you mentioned like how here, you know, Sidney Poitier rolls up to the mechanic and they all sort of take stock of each other. Yeah. Like, what would my job options be if I was still living in the South? Do I seem like an alien to you? And there's a few scenes like that in Green Book as well. Oh, interesting. You know, like in Green Book, there's a moment where like um, Mahersha Ali, his car breaks down. And so he gets out of the car and he looks out across the field and there are people there working in the fields. And they look at him like, who are you to be in that suit? Interesting. You know? Yeah. I mean, Green Book is not a great film, um, but the two films just reminded each other, me of each other so much, particularly in this construction of the character of either Mahersha Ali or Sidney Poitier in here as somebody... You mentioned the word flawless. I find that so interesting and complicated. I feel like 8 million things about it. Do you know right. what I mean? No, 100%. Like, you know, I think you were saying like he's presented as being flawless. And I think he looks flawless and I think he acts flawlessly. But then we also see that underneath all of that, he also has these preconceived notions. We, you know, how could you not? You know, about, you know, uh, a, a person, you know, that owns a plantation who has these things in front of his house, you know, you and who slaps him, you know, for 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 just daring to question him. Yeah, as I, a want, police I want Endicott in jail. Yeah, I of totally, course. I'm like, you, find any reason, tax evasion, put and, him in jail. And, it, and there's nothing different between that and what Gillespie is doing. I mean, Gillespie on a much grander scale, and I would say Gillespie is acting on it, where I think, you know, uh, Tibbs is trying to prove it. They're flawed characters. I think that. See, I don't. I think that's really maybe the only tiny flaw, and it's a flaw yeah. that the audience also agrees with. Right. So it doesn't even play like a flaw, really. He has to call it out and say it's a flaw. Right. 
Right, because we wouldn't know it otherwise. Yeah. yeah. But when he's like, I'm going to get that man arrested. We're like, yeah, please do. Because I guess what I'm trying to wrestle with here is like, is the progression of roles that, and you know, I'm not the first person to try to talk about this, but it's just, it is interesting to try to talk about it. You know, that for Sidney Poitier to have the career he had, to be as popular as he was, to be as respected as he was by the industry, had to play these really just ideal men. He couldn't play a human being almost. He had to play a superhuman. I mean, look, the, the whole idea of uh, guess who's coming to dinner is that, you know, is it okay for a white woman to be dating a black man? And the answer is yes, if he's like a Nobel <laughs> Prize winning, like he's just not an average man. He is an above average man, you know? And uh, I was reading an essay from Walter Mosley about this movie. And he was talking about when he grew up, he would watch Hogan's Heroes. And there was one black soldier in Hogan's Heroes, never said a line, was in every scene, but he was there. And he's like, and just to see that, actor on screen I tuned in every week never said anything but it made me feel like I'm seeing someone like me on TV and so you know I guess in a world where there's a systemic racism that's happening in films for years up until this where you know no black actors are getting a chance to actually have these lead roles that maybe there's an a, a course correction that's too much to make them so perfect that you couldn't find any flaw in it. You, you were presenting them in a way that would have to be idealized. And, you know, and, and it took time before we could have more nuanced uh, characters that weren't just showing up uh, white people's, you know, inherent racism. Does that make sense? I know there's a, you know, I don't yeah, know. Yeah. I mean, it's so much to sort of wrestle with because we'll get, I'm sure we're going to get into this like in great detail, when um, our magical die finally lands on Gone with the Wind. Yeah. But, you know, Hattie McDaniel really tried to talk a lot about this at the time. McDaniel, by the way, would be the first black actor who ever won an Oscar. Yeah. She blamed the NAACP for hurting her career. Interesting. Because the NAACP was very upset that she would play maid roles still. Mm -hmm. And they said that she was putting forth a bad representation, that she wasn't a perfect Sidney Poitier type. I mean, this is a little before Sidney Poitier existed. And she was trying to counter with, I am an older woman. I am a larger woman. I will never be cast as a romantic lead. So if you're telling me I can't play maids, if you're making the studios feel guilty for casting me as a maid, you're actually saying I can't work. And it's all, I mean, it's all just a giant tangle. You know, it's impossible to straighten out really, but well, it's impossible, I think, to us to even understand what these attitudes were, what these ideas were in a time when these are subversive ideas. What we're seeing, like this movie is incredibly subversive. You know, in a weird way, I think that this movie is a bit of a form of activism in its time. It's 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 pushing something to the forefront. And I thought maybe it'd be interesting to talk to somebody about the idea of like art and activism and how they kind of intermesh. So we are lucky today to sit down with activist, podcaster, and author of On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope, uh, DeRay McKesson. DeRay, thanks so much for being on the show. No, it's so good to be here. Did you ever see In the Heat of the Night? Oh, a long time ago. That's old, right? Yeah, it's an old film. I was thinking about uh, when this movie came out. It was a time when, uh, you know, two years after Selma, three years after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, and, like, protests are happening all across the country. And then this movie comes out and shows, I, I guess it puts racism a little bit more in the forefront of a film, right? Where, and, you know, we have, uh, have Sidney Poitier, who at this point is one of the only few 
black leading men in Hollywood, if not the only one. And I was thinking about the idea of like art as activism, you know, like there's going out there and, and being on the front lines and protesting. And then there's kind of making this art that maybe gets through to people. I wanted to talk to you about that idea at all. Like, uh, can art be activism? Yeah. We think about protest is the idea of telling the truth in public, right? Right. Some ways that we tell it are like standing in the middle of the street, shutting things down, like going up to hearings, running for office. And that helps us deal with the structural things. The other half of the work is the values and beliefs. And that's where art comes in to tell the truth a different way, to hit people differently. So, you know, people lament voting. They're like, voting isn't going to change. It's like, you're right. Voting isn't going to change everything. Voting is, is purely the structural and systemic stuff, like voting doesn't impact the values and belief stuff. That's the culture piece. And that's where the artists have a huge role to play. Yeah. I was thinking a little bit about Get Out as well, because when you kind of couch something in in a mainstream way, like, you know, I think when people see Get Out, there obviously is these, you know, we're, there's an indictment about what's going on. It, it's, it's kind of pulling things to the forefront, but at the same time, it's still entertaining. It doesn't feel like preaching. I feel like almost if you can like put the the medicine a little bit in in something that's palatable, it, it has an interesting effect of people. Always reminded too that like every story is a lesson in power. Mm-hmm. And like you often don't even realize how you're imbibing the lesson in power until it's too late. So like you can't name three movies where internal affairs isn't seen as the bad guy, right? Right. Like every time you encounter internal affairs or like the throwaway cops people hate nobody likes them like and like that actually is that is delivering a message about something right like in Zootopia for instance like did you see Zootopia uh yes I did yeah like you think about Zootopia it's like a police officer is the rabbit there's a part of the movie where she's trying to get the bad guy who stole the onion and she literally is like destroying people's neighborhoods you know like there's a miniature neighborhood she just like runs over it you're like that's wild right and like always mindful that every story is always saying something about power, who has it, who doesn't, who can wield it, who can't. And that like that is the work of art. Also related to this, like, you know, when we have a movie like like Get Out or like In the Heat of the Night, which swept the Oscars, which won so many Oscars. I wonder if there's this idea where the audience is like, well, we fixed it. We gave we gave this movie Oscars as in like we saw the problem. We acknowledged it. We gave it money. We gave it awards that that movies maybe give people a way to feel better without actually doing anything. So the challenge with empathy, right, is that empathy only works when the power dynamic is shared. When the power dynamic isn't shared, it becomes a form of voyeurism, right? That like there are a lot of people who watch these documentaries and stuff like that. And they're like, wow, it's really screwed up for those people. But at no point do they think they're ever going to be those people because they're not, you know? Right. The more and more that we start to tell stories in a way that actually highlight the system and highlight the way the system impacts people's lives and create the conditions for choices, that some people are afraid to be critical of the police. It's like sort of a weird thing, but we have made a million movies where like that is the subtext, you know, where right. that is like literally that there's no storyline without that happening. You know, even since the protests beginning in 2014, is that the outcomes actually haven't changed at all with police violence. The same number of people have been killed every single wow. year since the protests began. Um, and like it, it shows you that awareness is important. Awareness isn't the same thing as outcomes, right? That like we are all talking about police violence where you've seen a million videos that you never saw before. And like the outcomes still didn't change. And like I have to believe that some of that is like our inability to tell the stories about the system that like in California, for instance, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline, regardless of the outcome. That's crazy, you know? Well, then, what, like, what's the way that we can, you know, get inspired by these movies and then make it into 
action? Like, what is the best way to, you know, is it getting involved simply on a local level, like in your town? Or is it, you know, where where is the best way to kind of change the course of things? You know, there's some interesting uh, studies that have happened around abortion, for instance, that like, when you look at the reasons why women get abortions in real life, they are actually not mimicked on the screen. So on TV and film, like the reason that women get abortion is like, uh, it'll be like, you know, money or things like that. Where like in real life, people are just like, I, you know, the data is like, I'm just not ready. Or like, this isn't a, uh, the same thing with, with some of the policing work is that like, the more that you have internal affairs be, just like the bad guys. Like what's interesting about turn affairs always being the bad guy in TV shows and film is that it almost guarantees that you already are mocking accountability inside. Like the, you don't even think accountability should be real inside of police departments. Right. Cause like you've never even seen it effectively. It's like, that's interesting to me. Uh, the language we use. So like you've never seen a show that wasn't centered on like resistance that has resistance. So like those are the stories that we have to start telling, you know? Yeah, this that, like remind people that like resistance happens all over the place. We just don't tell the stories of rebellion and resistance. We tell the stories of the way systems bear on people. Like that's what we do. You've talked in some articles about the benefits and deficits of being on Twitter, right? You get to communicate and connect with people, but you also are getting attacked sometimes as well, you know? And in this movie, our lead character, Mr. Tibbs, played by Sidney Poitier, is a character who is trying to do good, right? Trying to tell people the truth and he's getting attacked and he keeps on going. And I was thinking about you in watching this movie. Like you're somebody who keeps on going and what what is it in you that, you know, you put yourself out there so much that makes you keep on going? What do you think, you know, what what is the thing that fuels you the most? It's sort of simple for me. It's like I really do think we can win, you know? Like that's yeah. it. Now, when I think about the challenges, so like the FBI's visit my house, uh, the first person ever permanently banned from Twitter was banned for raising money to try and get me killed. My phone's been hacked. Like all these things is like, I know that the people that we're up against want us to be too afraid to do the work. Like that's a part of what they're like. They want us to be too afraid to like come out again, to do something anymore. And like, I just won't let that happen. Right. So that's what keeps me fueled. I think about being a teacher too. I used to teach sixth grade math in East New York, Brooklyn. And like, you know, my kids, the kids I taught deserve like a better world than this. And like, I know that, you know, and I'll do whatever I can to fight for that world to come into existence. So that's what keeps me like hopeful and motivated. It's like, I know we can win. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time. And uh, and also yep. definitely check out your book on the other side of freedom, uh, The Case for Hope. And thank you so much for uh, just spending some time with us. Awesome to be here. Talk to you guys later. So I think that is interesting what DeRay is saying there, too. Like, you know, we feel good about ourselves when we see it, but do we do the work afterward? I think this movie is a complicated movie, especially as you and I are two white people that are, are, you know, of the same age, coming from the same time, to kind of wrap our heads around everything about this film. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I was trying to put myself in the shoes of was being a movie lover in 1967 – being at the Oscars where In the Heat of the Night wins five Oscars when it's Amazing. Like the big film of the night, even though Sidney Poitier is not nominated for this or any of his other movies that year, actually. Wow. To put that Oscar show in context, by the way, like, you know, the Oscar night where they won all the Oscars was April 10th, 1968. Mm-hmm. Um, the Oscar show was actually supposed to be on April 8th, 1968. 
but Martin Luther King had just gotten murdered a few days before. Oh, wow. So they actually pushed the Oscars back two days because Sidney Poitier, um, Sammy Davis Jr., Louis Armstrong, uh, Diane Carroll, they all said they weren't going to show up if they didn't push the Oscars back so that they could attend Martin Luther King's funeral. So I'm imagining like being there in the theater, it's been less than a week since Martin Luther King Jr. Yeah. was assassinated. This film that is so of the moment, you know, well, wins all these awards and you must maybe have your fingers crossed and think things are going to get better. Right. You know, in fact, here, I want to play a little clip. Like this is the very, this is the very introduction of that show. This is Gregory Peck, who we're going to finally get to when we get to Atticus Finch. Yeah. Um, giving the introduction. This has been a fateful week in the history of our nation. We join with fellow members of our profession and men of goodwill everywhere in paying our profound respects to the memory of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. Society has always been reflected in its art. And one measure of Dr. King's influence on the society we live in is that of the five films nominated for Best Picture of the Year, two dealt with the subject of understanding between the races. It was his work and his dedication that brought about the increasing awareness of all men that we must unite in compassion in order to survive. The lasting memorial that we of the motion picture community can build to Dr. King is to continue making films which celebrate the dignity of man whatever his race or color or creed. You know, interesting that Gregory Peck is eulogizing Martin Luther King. I, I think that that's an odd choice, too. It's like you have all these black actors and musicians, performers that are saying we will boycott if we if you don't move it. And then you have Gregory Peck eulogizing Martin Luther King. It's an odd. I don't know. I think that's odd. But the other thing that I was going to actually bring up to DeRay, which I thought was interesting, is like there's a great Martin Luther King quote where it's like, uh, one day we will learn to honor everyone by the content of their character rather than by the color of their skin. And that essentially is in the heat of the night. You know, if you were to distill it, I mean, there is that that element to it. Like that's I think that's the lesson learned by Gillespie to a certain extent. To a certain extent, you know, I mean, because. I guess what's interesting about Rod Steiger's performance, and maybe this is why he was nominated for it and won the Oscar and Sidney Poitier wasn't really nominated, mm -hmm. is, you know, Virgil Tibbs is sort of a relatively straight-lined construction. Yeah. But Rod Steiger, you know, Chief, Chief Gillespie's all over the place. You know, from scene to scene, he's softening, he's hardening. There seems to be almost more interest in he's his He's gum-chewing. No, I, he, yeah. I think this performance is, like, next-level performance. I mean, he... He is playing something that feels believable and real, not cartoony. Uh, and you don't know what you're going to get. You see this anger. Then you see, like, the moment I love in this film, you know, when they first meet, they go head to head. I was like, I literally, I was like, holy shit, I will watch these two guys forever. It felt like, again, I know we talk a lot about, like, how films kind of feel like plays. But it's like, it's these two actors. It's like, bam, bam, bam. It's like, like just going full at it. Let's play actually a little clip of Okay, that. yeah. What'd you hit him with? Hit whom? Who? 
Who? What are you? You a northern boy? What's a northern boy like you doing all the way down here? I was waiting for the train. Well, now there ain't no trains this time of morning. Tuesdays only, 4.05 to Memphis. You say? Well, <laughs> all right, you say right. <laughs> I mean, Virgil Tibbs is such a master of all time and space, all powerful and all knowing that he actually knows that if he pauses right there, the train's going to blow. I love that. <laughs> and you go from a scene like that, this riveting scene where they're, you're just, they're at each other's throats, but yet they're being somewhat civil to each other, you know, but you can tell the disdain. And then you get this scene at the end of the movie, and this is probably the closest that we're going to get to the, we're friends now, our lethal weapon, like, you are crazy, but I respect you moment at the end, and this is like the arc, I, I guess, of Gillespie kind of culminating in him carrying Tibbs' bags at the end, which is like the, which is the biggest kind of, you know, physical transformation that he makes. But this scene where they're just quiet and they're drinking whiskey at the end is Rod Steiger doing so much with so little. Yeah, I mean, let's listen to that clip. And like what we'll hear in it, I think, is... What sounds like friendship also being able to spin into menace at any minute. Yeah. Do you get just a little lonely? No lonelier than you, man. Oh, now don't get smart, black boy. I don't need it. Thank you. And you know what else we hear in there, by the way, Paul? My favorite AFI film trend, which is incels. I'm saying to you guys, being lonely, <laughs> uh, talking about how they have no love in their life from the ladies. But then uh, but then the chief being like, well, I don't need it. And you're like, I think you do because you brought up this conversation. <laughs> well, you know what I was going to say about that scene uh, that I really like was apparently the day they were shooting that, it was a terrible, terrible rainstorm, and they couldn't get into the location. So Sidney Poitier and Rod Steiger are sitting in a car rehearsing this scene over and over and over again. And they're improvising, and they're kind of ironing it out and making it sound realer and more believable. And Steiger improvises that one line where he calls him Black Boy. And Norman Jewison was like, I, I don't know. I don't think we should do that in that scene. And it's... It does what we keep on talking about. It doesn't, Rod Steiger is not changing. He's not like, all right, let me now, like, you know, he's he's not becoming a whole different person. He still is using the language and the thoughts that he has, you know, and I, I think there's, I just thought that was an interesting improvisation that is baked into the movie that I think makes that scene even feel more organic and and, and more authentic. But I want to take a second too and just talk about who Sidney Poitier is. Oh, yeah. Because his whole biography is just really interesting for people who don't know. You know, he has such a distinct way of speaking. Right. Right. And a lot of that comes from the fact that he was a kid born to tomato farmers like oh, wow. in the Bahamas. Not even Nassau, but like a tinier part of the Bahamas, where when he was 10 years old and the family finally like moved to Nassau, uh -huh. he was like, oh, paved streets. He'd never seen paved streets before. I mean... Sidney Poitier is a man who was born really with nothing. You know, he was born wow. in in America almost as like a technicality. Oh, wow. His parents were transporting tomatoes back and forth on a boat. And when they landed in Florida, his mom uh, gave birth to him prematurely. And his dad was convinced he was going to die. He was born like two months early. So his dad like 
walks to um, an undertaker and gets a little box to like bring home to bury their son in for when he presumably dies like any minute now. And his mother goes to more like a soothsayer, like a fortune teller. And the fortune teller says that not only is their baby Sydney going to grow up, but he's going to end up like, quote unquote, walking next to kings, which he did. You know, like he yeah, actually got wow. to know everybody. But there's something really fascinating in Sydney's story, the way that he describes it to people, the way that he explains how he became who he is, which is he, because he grew up so cloistered, mm -hmm. he didn't even see a movie until he was 10. He didn't even really know what movies were that much until he was 10. He learned everything later in a way where he was able to kind of comprehend and see it for what it was. Like he didn't really experience racism, he says, because oh, he wow. grew up in an all black community until he moved to um, the States when he was a teenager to try to find work. And so he got to look at it with this distance eye of what? Why is this happening? This is strange that he he said that he always felt like he didn't grow up learning to kind of be extra polite. He didn't grow up in fear. OK, interesting. Here he is on screen, you know, to us, like he is just the absolute definition of being brilliant and smart, yeah. intelligent, educated, everything. And he didn't learn how to read until he was in his teenage years because he really didn't go to school ever. And so he tells this whole story of like moving to New York and um, trying to get a job as a dishwasher. And they had no dishwasher jobs. And then he saw like a job that was like actors wanted. Yeah. So he went in there and they're like, can you act? And he's like, sure. And they handed him a script and he couldn't read it. Wow. And so he taught himself to read almost because he was angry that the man at the theater, the man who at the American Negro Theater called him a dishwasher to his face and told him to go home. And he was like, I will show you. And he had that same, he had the spark you see in his characters of, you will not tell me that I am less than what I think I can be. Wow. So he taught himself to read, to audition again, got rejected again because okay. he was still not any good. He was still just like a teenager. And um, he said, listen, I will work as a janitor at your theater if you let me take classes. And they said, okay. And then they tried to fire him again because they're like, you're just really bad at this. But the people in his acting classes stuck up for him and said, like, let him stay around, let him stay around. And he slowly, slowly, slowly got better. But so there's that's I think that's in a part what created the guy that we see on stage. You know, he speaks with this specific sort of elocution style because he had a Bahamian accent that he had to, like, kind of lose or smooth over or overcome. And yeah, he was just sort of able to come in and look at things with a distance. He really was also very conscious about the sort of roles he would say yes to and the sort of roles he would never do. You know, he kind of he made a lot of bets on I can say no, I'm willing to go back to washing dishes or working at yeah. restaurants, which he'd had to do a couple of times in order to say yes only to the things that I feel like represent the stories I want to tell. I want to play a little clip from Oprah Winfrey. People you guys out there have probably heard it before when she won the Cecil B. DeMille Award this year at the Golden Globes. And this is how she opened her speech. Sitting on the linoleum floor of my mother's house in Milwaukee, watching Anne Bancroft present the Oscar for Best Actor at the 36th Academy Awards. She opened the envelope and said five words that literally made history. The winner is Sidney Poitier. Up to the stage came the most elegant man I had ever seen. I remember his tie was white and of course his skin was black and I'd never seen a black man being celebrated like that. And I have tried many, many, many times to explain what a moment like that means to a little girl 
a kid watching from the cheap seats as my mom came through the door, bone tired from cleaning other people's houses. But all I can do is quote and say that the explanation in Sydney's performance in Lilies of the Phil, amen, amen. You know, speaking of his choices, you know, this movie was a controversial choice. Like I mentioned earlier, the studio wouldn't even finance it unless they could believe they would make their money back if no one from the South saw it. That's how much they wanted an insurance policy. It was like, just in case no one in the South sees this movie, we need to know we'll get it back. But more importantly, Sidney Poitier did not want to shoot this movie in the South. He was being followed around. He was having death threats. They shot a small part of it in Tennessee just to get some exteriors and stuff. But even at that point, they were in like a mixed race hotel. It was not safe for him, you know, so they had to move the movie a little bit more up north to just protect Poitier in this choice. But it's like, think about that, like making this movie, going back to what DeRay was talking about. I mean, that is a form of activism to, to be like, I'm going to do this choice that is could do harm to myself. Because I think a lot of the times when you hear about actors making choices, it's like, can you believe he gained all that weight? Can you believe he really ate a heart? Can you believe that they did this? They made his own shoes. He really ate a heart. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, but this is someone who is making a legitimate dangerous choice. Yeah, I mean, the story I heard is that a couple of years before this, two years before he shot this movie, he went to Mississippi in 1964 with Harry Belafonte. And um, they went to give a giant amount of money to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Yeah. Um, I think they'd raise like $100,000 to give to this like activist group in the South. And they had to be escorted by cops. Uh, civil rights people were already getting disappeared. And they said that the Ku Klux Klan did not attack them, but that they made their presence known. Wow. But truthfully, I think I'm I'm just impressed with... The performances across the board. Now, you actually got to sit down with someone from the film. Yeah. Let's talk to Lee Grant. I mean, Lee Grant, you see her in this film as Mrs. Colbert, the widow, the woman who insists that Tibbs stay on the case. She has a couple beats in this movie that I absolutely love. I'm going to ask her about some of them. She also has a very, very wild story that's going to touch on stuff we've been talking about this whole show. You know, this like tons of our episodes before. You know, without any further ado... Lee Grant, 93, one of the smartest people I've spoken to. She's awesome. Here we go. Well, so I have a million questions to ask you about In the Heat of the Night. Can I, can I just jump in? Yeah, please. Great. I'm blowing my nose. <laughs> We're just taping this, recording it. We can edit out any nose blows. No, and- please. Please keep it in. <laughs> <laughs> you know, your character, Mrs. Colbert, the widow... I was realizing watching this, she's the only other outsider in small town Mississippi who's able to look at it with these eyes of what is happening in this town? What is wrong with the people of this town? Exactly. How did that kind of influence how you thought of the part? Well, you know, you don't intellectualize in a situation where you're you're coming from Chicago and you're going to a small southern town with people who you have no contact with usually and and find yourself up against a kind of prejudice that you've never experienced before and you lose the one person you love in your life. You don't think outside the box. The shock of losing him 
and being faced with these prejudiced creatures who I'd never met before in my life outside of this one uh, detective from the East who was the only one who made sense who they were trying to get rid of. When an actor works, you don't take in all the facts because it's not an intellectual job. It's, it's a job of going through an experience of losing someone that you love. Well, I, I love the choices you made and how you showed that shock and that grief. I think when I think of that scene where the camera enters the room and she's sitting in the corner picking hair out of her hairbrush. That was very astute of you. Goodness, I don't think anybody has noticed that or realized that. Yeah. I, I think people never understand what grief is or how people react to it until it happens. You know, by the time I did that film, and by the way, Norman Jewison and Hal Ashby, you know, I went from Heat of the Night to The Landlord. Both of them dealt with how people treat black people. And, and they both broke the mold in terms of, of the kind of films that they made. And I think that they knew of my history, that, that I, was, I had been a blacklisted actress and had lost 12 years of my acting career on television and, and films because I'd been married to a communist. And they never mentioned it, but they gave me that part, the part of the, the woman, because they knew that I had been through it and that I could bring something real and fresh to their film. You hear what I'm saying? I do. It's making me think of that scene where your character yells, what kind of people are you? What kind of place yes. is this? That what anger. What kind of people? What kind of people are you? When Sydney told me that my husband was gone, Norman had us improvise that. In the show, we cover every film in the AFI Top 100, and HUAC comes up so much I want to really understand what that was like, what that was like at that moment. I mean, because here you are, you had just made your first big film. You had just been Oscar nominated for that film, for Detective Story. Oh, yeah. And then here's this moment where everyone in Hollywood is asked to make a, a choice. You know, I, I made the choice and uh, I paid for it. And also, I'm grateful. I'm so grateful that I did exactly the terrible thing that my parents hoped I wouldn't do. You know, I was on my way, no, no question about it, to a very, very big career. And I, I, I just, there's something inside of me that couldn't do it, and that's all there was to it. So um, I was on the blacklist for 12 years. And I was 24 when I was put on it, and 36 when I got off it. So you can bet that my sense of time when I'm offered films like In the Heat of the Night and The Landlord and, and the other films I did, that my sense of, of making up for lost time and, and getting back at that whole McCarthy group by, by winning, winning, winning and working and working and working was driven. I was driven. What kept you... Going in that 12-year period, what kept you feeling centered that you felt like you'd made the right choice? I, I just was, what do you mean, made the right choice? I guess I guess it's hard to kind of 
I guess I'm asking if you found a level of peace with it in that 12 years or how, how, those, how hard those 12 no years peace, were. There Amy. Yeah. There was no peace. First of all, I'm 24. I marry a 36-year-old communist, great talent, great writer, Arnie Manoff. I looked up to him. I thought he was God. And he, you know, he had two kids and he needed uh, a nursemaid. And what I did during that period, besides learn how to cook and wash dishes and, and put clothes into the washing machine, which I had never done in my life, was to be involved in the union because the television union was blacklisting its own members. If somebody got up at the television union and said, you're, you're, you're turning in names to red channels, that person would have their name turned into red channels that day. And if they didn't pay $100 and, and say they were sorry in front of Astro, which was the television union, uh, they just stayed blacklisted. Well, that was my job during 12 years. And I became a, a very, very good uh, pro-democracy worker. And I loved it. I was fascinated by it. I, my heart was in it, and I don't regret one second of those 12 years because uh, those were the kind of years that made me go into documentaries when I stopped acting. You know, that's, that's what I became. I became a documentary maker. So that was my school. Those 12 years of being blacklisted was college. I wanted to ask you about those documentaries. I mean, because you've won major awards as a director of both docs and features. I mean, including an yeah. Oscar and yeah. also being the first female DGA winner. And I was wondering, like, yes. yes, whoa, what a triumph that was. That was great. What were you observing on sets as an actress, you know, from Jewison and from Ashby about the things you wanted to do when you were a director or to not Honey, do? I had no, no idea of being a director. I did not want to be a director. All I wanted to do, I, I was so focused on acting and doing one character after another, and I, I was starved for acting. I also was very hung up on how I looked, because how you look is how you get your next job in Hollywood, as you know. And, and I was lying about my age, because I was over the hill as far as they were concerned, and also... Uh, raising my daughter, Dinah, and, and being with my boyfriend, Joey, who is now my husband of 50-something years. Um, it was after I finished, I think, Shampoo, that I got a call from AFI that said, do you know any women who want to be a part of our first director's unit? And I gave them a name. I think Diane Cannon. I gave them a name. And then I said, wait a minute, Me? And it was out of that experience at AFI that I shifted. I mean, my whole life shifted through that. That story makes me think of the title of your book, I Said Yes to Everything. Yes, yes. And by the way, I, w I was having a problem in editing that final film, and I called Hal Ashby, who was very busy making another film. And he came over to the house, and he brought his own editing machine, 
and it was like it was like watching a musician with a big bass, uh, you know, violin. I mean, he chugged, 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 and he got everything the way it should be in 20 minutes. But it was like a master class. I was wondering if you could take us back to 1967. I mean, tensions in the country are so high. And what did this film mean? Oh, it changed. It was historical. First of all, Sidney Poitier. I mean, he had made two films by then. But... I mean, all those little southern girls were taking a look at at this tiger and saying, oh, wow. I mean, he was intelligent. He was strong. He was gorgeous and so funny and charming. All of the things that, that you want in your dream boyfriend. Sydney, Sydney was amazing. And he was presented in a film in which he was an Eastern detective who came to the South and he was the only one intelligent enough to solve the murder. And he wouldn't have done it if he didn't feel sorry for me because he couldn't stand them. And that one scene he had with that plantation owner where the man asks him something and he answers... And the man slaps his face, and Sidney slaps him right back. And the plantation owner asks Rod, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? And Rod says, I don't know. I don't know. That, that reading has stayed with me for whatever, 50 years, 40, 50 years, whatever it is. I don't know. It was a landmark at a time when it, it could and I think did help change the history of our country at a time when being black was made to be uh, a nothing, a scum, a less than nothing, something you killed if it got uppity. And, and, and it was part of that great pouring into the South of marches and and people who didn't want to take it anymore. It was part of that movement. Well, Lee, thank you for playing a part in that. Well, thank them for for allowing me to. You know, um, there was a, a documentary called Hal, about Hal, where Norman Jewison is talking about it. And, you know, my... my I, Tears come to my eyes when I, when I see the way that Norman talked about Hal. He really, he loved him. And it had, you know, almost a mid-century feel about it, the way he expressed himself. Of course, he's a Canadian. But, but it, was, he, it was a very beautiful friendship. Do you think Norman being a Canadian gave him a different... Viewpoint yes, on? I do. Yes, I, I really do. I, I, I was thinking that as I was talking, that there is a gentleness uh, in Norman that he's not afraid of. He doesn't have that, you know, need to be rugged or need to be masculine because he is. He has such a lyric quality, too. You know what I mean? That that movie I, with um, Sh- 
Cher, you know, the Italian movie. Oh, the Moonstruck. Movie. Yeah, Moonstruck. I mean, think of that. Think of that guy making In the Heat of the Night and making Moonstruck. I mean, look at that. Look at the arc of his romance and, and his and he's so cute. <laughs> <laughs> You know, Lee, between us, by the way, um, the Hal documentary was directed by a friend of mine from college, and I'm so glad to hear that you liked it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, is it a she? It's a she, yeah, Amy. Yes. Her, she's also named Amy. Oh, gosh. I, I, I think I met her. Yes, of course. Well, I appreciate that she gets to follow in your footsteps as an awesome director. Well, we, you know, we all make our own way, honey. I don't think of it as following in, in footsteps. I really don't. You know, somehow or other, you know, we hatch it our way. It's like you breathe easy that there are more women that are able to have a, a project that they want to do and can do it. You know, it's we were few and far between then, I guess. Oh, Willie, I can't thank you enough for taking some time out of your day to talk to us. Okay, sweetheart. Have a good day. It's, that was amazing. Also, by the way, Sydney uh, Poitier is going to turn 92 this year, I believe. Wow. So maybe there's just a thing like, if you're in this movie, you get an extra bump of longevity. But um, I want to say one of my favorite beats that you see in Lee Grant in this film is there's this scene where she and Sydney Poitier are in the room and he sort of makes a move as though he's willing to sort of like touch her and comfort her. Yeah. And she won't touch or comfort him. And the scene plays it just right down this line where you don't know if she won't touch him because she's grieving or because she's just uncomfortable with him. Right. And why she might be uncomfortable with him. Is it because of his skin color? Is it not? We don't really know. And there's something in the murkiness of her reaction to him because she is probably the only person in this film who is not overtly gigantically racist well she keeps him in town she keeps him in town but she keeps him in town for her own her, her purposes own reason, yeah. you know because he's better at it than everybody else and i like that the film has some murk in there that it doesn't have to have to ever be like i don't see color he's the best man right. for the job i don't really know how she feels on the inside yeah yeah that that is uh i do like that about this movie just the idea of not knowing ex everyone's motives and i think a lot of that is due to the editor Hal Ashby, one of the great directors, you know, Harold and Maude, The Last Detail, Shampoo, being there. He's editing the film and uh, according to a lot of the things I read, was very instrumental in making this a lean movie. The movie's an hour and 15 minutes. There's not an ounce of fat on it, you know, and and apparently he did a great job at like shaving down anything that would feel like it was cloying or being too overly sentimental or, or maybe even liberal, like, you know, just like taking out the message. And, and I think because of that, the movie kind of moves this clip. You have these two great directors. I mean, they, I'm going to say they both are great directors working at two different levels of the film. One is on set, putting it together. And the other is like receiving it and kind of them putting his own spin on it. I just think it's, you know, very rarely do you see editors that become, these amazing directors, a lot of times DPs, 100%, but editors moving to that level of directors is interesting. It's true, although I can't help but wonder if he edited out tiny beats that might have made the mystery make sense. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need really? it. Okay, okay, we don't, need, we don't need to understand how he knows it. He just knows it. I, well, you know what my favorite edit is? What? It's fairly early on. It's when um, 
you know, there's sort of like the twin guys who work at the desk in the yeah. cop thing. And Chris like, oh, you didn't tell me to fix the door. You told Harold. And then they, they cut to a street scene. And the first thing you see is two twins walking down the sidewalk. Two totally different, like, double mint twins. Yeah. It's like two redheads in matching blue sweatshirts. I was like, twin to twin, what's happening here? <laughs> it was like, this movie is more surreal than I gave it credit for. Well, I mean, there's so much fun detail in this film. We talked earlier about the killer uh, and how we open up the movie like he's killing flies with a rubber band. Everybody that we see in this town is uniquely eccentric and without being I think in my opinion, I'm not from the South. If you're offended by this movie and you're from the South, I apologize. But I think everyone feels not like stereotypical Southerners, right? There are attitudes and elements that are there, but they all feel like people. And the one person I was going to draw that to was the photographer in the beginning who's taking a picture of the homicide. He's so excited to get like these pictures. He's like, wow, this is like they're they're not they're not played dumb. They're not played all angry. There, there are variations. Oh, there's some dumb, angry people. There are some dumb. <laughs> and look, look. There's an angry mob that come after him, but they're not like they don't. They're not like, oh yeah, come on. You know, they they look intimidating when those guys come. I mean, when they're surrounding him in that fight scene in that factory. I mean, they don't look super hicked out. Yeah, they're uh, like casual hicks with Confederate flag license plates. Yeah, no, but you don't you feel that? I mean, they don't feel like. They feel like they're members of society. You know what I'm saying? That's a, they're right, not a they're gang. Not, they're not flagrantly missing teeth or something. Exactly. Or right. or or feel like they were like, all right, we're going to send them out to do dirty business. Like, no, it sounds like these are people that probably have normal jobs. They look like uh, Banana Republic, uh, you know, like a lynching crew. Like, you know, they're, they're kind of like That's a little bit. That's what the put- racists look like now, Paul. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. There, there is a character, though, who... I, I am of two minds of this. I want to play this clip for you and say how I felt about it and then how I felt about it later. Okay. Because what we do have here, and we see her very early on and then she comes back, the big-breasted, hot-to-trot 16-year-old. Right? Oh, my God. One of the best monologues in the entire movie. You don't like that monologue? Okay, let's play Because All right, let's play her monologue when she gets pulled into the office, when she confesses that she, or when she tells everybody that she slept with Sam. And y'all tell me if this it all sounds like a human being. He says. What? I didn't hear what you said. He says. Hey, little girl. You know what the coolest spot in town is? And I said, No, Sam, I guess I don't. And he said, A cemetery, that's where. No, why? They got all of them big, cool tombstones. Have a stretch out in a tombstone, Dolores. Feel all that nice, cool marble along your body. Okay, I'm trying to picture being yeah. a 16-year-old girl being called into the cop's office, talking about having sex with somebody while rubbing my thighs around like these old dudes. And I, that she's just does not She's seducing him. I think. Why is she seducing? Who's she seducing? Well, look, in that she's. Room? We reveal later on that she's lying, and yeah. I and I feel like that is she's like telling the sexy story. To you, like, yes, I, I, I believe she's acting in that moment. The character is acting. And and it is like almost, it's almost literary, like a shitty Southern Gothic romance exactly. novel. Exactly. That's how I doubled back on it. Because when I first saw that scene, I was like, what is this garbage? Yeah, no, but I that's why I like it so much because it just feels like she's also like, look, if you're a police officer in this town, we already see how these police officers act. You tell that story and you kind of like, 
make it a little titillating and whatever, like, yeah, you'll listen to her. You know, it's like that idea that, like, she can control these cops to do whatever she wants. She tells that story, bingo, bango. Like, he's putting his number one guy, you know, uh, in jail. Exactly. But I was just sort of like, because there's a couple choices in here that I'm like, what? And I did a couple double takes on. That was a big one. Okay. Uh, Another choice that I did, like, a big double take on, it's just this music cue. Uh, and this happens right after the slapping scene. They walk outside and um, it's Tibbs, it's Gillespie. They have this moment and then the music kicks in. And I'm like, what? What about that big speech you gave me this morning? I didn't know you were going to slap any white man, least of all Endicott. All right, give me another day. Two days, I'm close. I can pull that fat cat down. I can bring him right off this hill. Man, you're just like the rest of us, ain't you? And we're just we're just on faces, basically. Like you're you you basically hold on his face, like in the moment in Empire Strikes Back when Darth Vader says, "I am your father." Like like that's it. It feels like this sometimes, and I was looking at the movie and going, what, what is about it? The coloring is interesting. The way it's shot, it looks like very much like 70s TV and not like 70 features. Yeah, it looks like it's learning things like, how do I want to do the shaky cam here? How do yes. I want to do the fisheye look of the car coming at me? And it's doing like stutter steps, but then not con- like, like there are certain choices that they make only once. It doesn't feel like it's totally it's like oh we tried it and we like it but yeah, you're right they only do it it's almost not even like a choice through the movie it's yeah. kind of like it's a vestigial fish it's like i got one foot i don't have two feet i'm not walking the earth yet yeah seeing how far we're gonna run i we, we cannot let this episode go without playing a couple more clips of the songs in here because oh, yeah. every time a song cue came on i mean okay i think the music in here is great however so much of it doesn't ever fit together. Like, this doesn't feel like a score. It feels sort of like fun scraps of different music they couldn't use. Like, here, th- like this one. Let's play this clip of the score right when they arrest a dude on a bridge. That song is a banger, oh. and then it turns into like noir. Oh, I mean, I love. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the taking of Pelham one two three, like that, like ba bum bum bum, a bum 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 bum. Like it has like that same kind of like I don't know. I just like and it just I lo- like I love that kind of twangy, you know, a bassy kind of thing. Let's just, I mean, as just a one two montage. Can I play these two songs that we hear also? Hey, little lark, get out of the dark. Foul owl on the prowl. Cute little Jay, stay out of his way. Foul owl on the prowl. Yeah, I mean, this whole soundtrack is full of bangers. I, I love it. I love the soundtrack a lot. So, Amy, obviously, this movie does well at the Oscars. Um, it's acclaimed. You know, it's a, in the middle of an Oscar season, which is on one side of the fence, you have um, the music man, right? And on the other side of the fence, you have Bonnie and Clyde, which we talked about on the show. And this movie kind of falls exactly in the middle of both. It's pushing boundaries, but not too much. And it's mainstream, 
but a little subversive. It is in in a weird way a perfect bridge movie. Uh, it makes sense that that movie won this year. Well, if, if Green Book wins this year, I'll be like, man, have we not gotten anywhere in in what we feel in fifty years? Well, I mean, we talked about that with Deray a little bit. The idea that look, this movie is approaching things like false arrests and you know bad police behavior, things that we're still talking about. This is nineteen sixty seven. It's two thousand eighteen. Nineteen. Almost 19, you know, but um, how do people feel about this movie when it came out? Was it a was it a critical darling? It, it was liked a lot. I wouldn't know if I would go as far as to say it was loved. It sort of gets that like, you know, rounding third base type of review. Like, that's good for what it is. Because, right. you know, that is one of the tricky things about about being a critic is trying to like align yourself with you want people to see a film. You want people to respect this film. How hard do you go when you don't like things about it? Yeah. Uh, so Variety tried to kind of cover all of those um, bases. Like Variety enjoyed the film. Variety loved Rod Steiger. Variety also called it an erratic screenplay, which indulges in heavy-handed, sometimes needless plot diversion. As oh, a matter wow. of fact, its suddenness of climax suggests that the creative team went dry. And he also really hates the bridge scene. He calls it tedious intercutting. He says he doesn't like the long zoom. He thinks Steiger sitting in his patrol car waiting for the prey just seems... Kind of lazy. He says the scene does not play. It fizzles out completely. And I actually disagree a little bit. I thought that that scene, the laziness of it was what I liked. That these right. cops are like, we know how this goes. Yeah. It didn't have to be exciting because that's the one way out. Yeah. Well, I mean, is it back onto this idea of this is a time of change in cinema? Like Bonnie and Clyde, also this year, people don't like it because it's such a, a shift in the way that we're seeing things. I don't know. I, I don't disagree with the climax not being incredibly fulfilling. I, I think it it just kind of ends. You're like, oh, okay. And I think that's because the mystery isn't that good. Um, yeah, like the happy ending for Poitier. He doesn't care that much about the murder. And, no. you know, the murder, we think it is about racism, but it's sort of also, it's sort of more just about, like, money. It's like a happenstance. Everything is always about money, you know? I think this movie is better acted than it is shot. If you know, like, I think like as a director, I think he did better with the performances than he did with the shooting of it. If that makes sense. Cause there are things that feel like, I feel like when we first see that chase scene, it's incongruous to what we've been watching. It kind of, you, you takes you out of the moment. There are just a couple of things in it that I'm like, like we talked about that stutter step of the camera. It's like thematically right. But some shot choices a little bit off. That that's how yeah. I will I will kind of ca- uh, call it on. I this mean, one. the one that seems weird to me is when they have that car. You know where Cordier yeah. sees like this car oh, he's yeah. going to get to borrow, and they shoot it like a James Bond car introduction yeah. scene. They're like, "Look, it's a convertible. It's robotic. Oh my god!" And it really is that moment where they're like, "Look what your watch can do, Mister Bond." And you're yeah, like, what is happening? Like, why are we staring at this car for a while? But I would say then, like the cinematography, I love the colors of this movie. I love the way that he, you know the reds and the blues. You know, you feel like there's an energy to it. It it's a mixed bag visually. This movie is a mixed bag. I, I think I enjoyed this film. I really enjoyed it, which I guess leads me to my question. Does this movie belong on the AFI top 100 list? It's number 75, kind of in the lower tier of the list. But still fairly high-ish for me. I'm like, I I, I could see it in the 90s. I will say that a lot of the times the way I judge films on this list and our conversations about them is two ways. Did I enjoy watching the film? And absolutely, yes. I was riveted by these performances And then is there enough to talk about? And for a movie that's not very heavy handed, there's so many interesting details here that I do believe that this movie is 
a time capsule of 1967, and we're getting to see some things that break open boundaries. You know, um, I, I believe this film belongs there from a historical perspective, but at the same time, you know, when we first got this film on our roll, people would say to us on Twitter, like, Oh, it's an easy watch. It's a great watch. It's a, and it is, it, you know, it's, it's a really great episode of Law and Order or, you know, or, you know, um, maybe you're right. I would push it a little bit lower. I could maybe do without it. I just feel. Really? Yeah. All I, right. Say I, it. I, Speak your truth. I could maybe do without it. To me, this feels like the movies that I have had a more harder time with, like High Noon. Like, I enjoyed this way more than High Noon. I mean, but there is a High Noon-ish to it. Like, oh, yeah. hey, mister, everybody's telling you you're going to get killed if you try to do the right thing and act in the name of justice. And he's like, well, I'm not leaving. All right, so I want it in the 90s. Amy wants it off. Well, then, Paul, let me ask you this. Mm-hmm. Would you take Heat of the Night off the list if you could put Beverly Hills Cop on? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it's my AFI <laughs> list, one billion percent. I mean, I'm sorry, I'm biased. It's one of my favorite films of all time. Yes, I'm going to say yes at the at at really just to drive everyone <laughs> insane. I believe Beverly Hills Cop belongs on this list. Oh, let the let the tweet hate begin. You're going to get arrested by so many cops. By the way, you know yes. you didn't ask me. What? Is there a Simpsons? Oh my goodness, you're totally right. How could we almost end without that? Is there a Simpsons, Amy? I couldn't find one. Wow. I know. I, I There's looked. not a call me Mr. Burns? I thought for sure there would be. I, I couldn't find one. I was looking around. I didn't see anything. All right. There's, so we throw it to you, audience. Yeah. Uh, if you can find it and I can't find it, absolutely. Like there is I an can't episode. believe that there is not a call me Mr. No. Burns. They there's, call me Mr. Burns. There's an episode of the new Ghostbusters, the cartoon from yeah. the 80s called Call Me. They call me Mr. Slimer. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that exists. Um, but I could not find All right. Simpsons. So it's the gauntlet is thrown. Amy, why don't we roll the die and see what is next? Oh, it's a big one. Well, Number 12. What is that? Ooh, The Searchers. I've never seen The Searchers. I bought the Blu-ray because I wanted to watch it, but I never have watched The Searchers. I'm excited. A little cowboy action. This is a great way to start the new year. You know, we're searching for ourselves, trying to find what we have, what's new, what's out there. I mean, I oh, said this. Oh, wow, you have not seen this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I have not. I haven't. All right. So I don't know what it's about, but maybe we could. Uh... No, I like I like where you're going. Let's have people search within themselves, say what their New Year's resolution is. And say it in a John Wayne accent for my own personal torture and amusement. I absolutely love this. All right, great. So why don't you give us a call? Uh, you can do that at the, our unspooled voicemail line at 747-666-5824. That's 747-666-5824. Have a happy new year. Happy new year. 